Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Thursday, April 22nd, 2021. And here's the headlines. And uh, my beloved Bright One Home delivered, as always, to Chicago Sun-Times. I thought we'd start with a local uh, headline as opposed to the national headline. This one's just unbelievable, folks. You know, I... I <laughs> I almost find Chicago, I talked about this on the, the live show today, a welcome diversion for the utter insanity of the world, Chicago politics. So it just, it's, just so, it's just so sleazy, shamelessly sleazy. Here's the headline. Thoroughly corrupt and distasteful. Fed say a comment about Jewish people made by Ed Burke during the probe of the alderman proved more than just offensive. It was evidence of his wrongdoing. Yes, the feds and their ongoing uh, indictment of Alderman Ed Burke, once the most powerful alderman in, no, let's amend that. Once the most powerful alderman in Chicago City Council, Mayor Rahm Emanuel, Mayor Richard M. Daley, took a look at all the aldermen in the city council and they said, who is best positioned to be the most powerful alderman in charge of the finance committee, which oversees every single contract, every single TIF handout that the city has. I know. I'll take the sleazy guy, Ed Burke, and put him in charge. Anyway, it's always entertaining to talk about Chicago politics. Without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. This distinguished guest is able to talk about national politics, international politics, local politics, state politics, and labor politics. Without further ado, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hello, uh, my name is Miles Camp Lassen. I am a web editor at In These Times Magazine, a national uh, progressive lefty magazine based in Chicago. Um, and I freelance write for various outlets such as Jacobin Magazine, sometimes national outlets like The Guardian. Um, and I'm a fairly regular guest here on the Ben Jarofsky Show, so always happy to uh, be back. Also a lifelong Chicagoan. Yes, that's why he's more than capable of talking about any 
Chicago breaking story. He is a proud graduate of Whitney Young High School, a proud native son of Beverly on the southwest side of Chicago, though he doesn't live there anymore. So before we go to the national news, Miles, and you and I talked yesterday dutifully, we put together a great list of things we wanted to talk about, particularly labor news uh, in the aftermath of Amazon and Alabama, the PRO Act is before Congress right now. That could make it uh, a little less uh, arduous for unions to break in on Amazon and uh, may get you a, a Biden update from you. Your Our shows, one of our shows, uh, most popular Bernie uh, enthusiasts. But I got to ask you, man, what is it about Chicago? You were born here. You were raised here. You went to high school here. Okay, you still live here. You could live anywhere. You've chosen to live in Chicago. What is it about this city that produces people like Alderman Ed Burke, <laughs> who, again, was for years one of the most powerful aldermen in the city, if not the most powerful? What is it about Chicago? Help me out here, Miles, that produces a guy like Ed Burke, who uh, was running a property tax appeal business while sitting atop of the finance committee, so absolutely every single powerful interest in the city who wanted a handout from city government would have been tempted to hire Burke's property tax uh, business, uh, appeal business, and um, and now that's, of course, what got Burke in trouble. What's about Chicago? Help me out here. Well, I, can, I mean, I think anybody looking at uh, the reported quotes from Ed Burke uh, has to be disgusted by them. I mean, it was just pure anti-Semitism. I mean, it's just as clear as day, you know, it's not, it's not like reading through the, reading the tea leaves or anything. He just came out and said some really uh, disgusting comments. And especially considering the last mayor of this city was uh, Jewish. It's, and also was an ally of his essentially it's absurd. Um, and I think it goes to show, and it's the fallout of this, obviously, you know, Burke is tied up in all these scandals. And yet he uh, was just yesterday at the first in-person city council meeting of the year, uh, glad handing. He was out, you know, shaking hands and doing it, working the floor as he does. And he's off scot-free. Meanwhile, he's brought all these people down in his uh, wake, including I would uh, offer the um, somebody who could have been mayor of this city, Tony Preckwinkle. I think her campaign really cratered because of the fact she was tied to Burke at the time that all of these national headlines were coming out about um, Burke's corruption. Um, and now Kim Fox is facing, you know, uh, calls for her to give back funding that he had given to her campaign. The thing is, Burke, it's not like it's any show of actual political support. He's just giving money out so that he can, you know, buy some influence and have somebody, you know, on his, uh, you know, supporting him. And it goes to show that I think we need to rethink our campaign finance system in this city. Obviously, nationally, there needs to be, you know, work to get corporate money out of politics. But candidates can't keep, you know, relying on people like Ed Burke to fund their campaigns because it just taints them. And then they're suddenly have to answer for uh, the kind of disgusting comments that, uh, that he reportedly made. Yeah, no, the, the comments Burke made again, uh, these were part of uh, documents that the feds turned over to the court uh, in uh, to counter the argument by uh, Burke's attorneys that Burke should not 
the prosecution should not be allowed to continue against Burke because uh, essentially they were entrapping him. Uh, that was more or less the argument that uh, Ed Burke's attorneys, and I love pointing this one out, uh, Miles. I, I <laughs> Burke's lawyers are former federal prosecutors. That's how it goes. We train the federal prosecutors who learn the tricks of the trade by trying to put crooked politicians in jail. And then once they've learned everything they think they need to know, then they go make a fortune in the private sector using all those tricks of the trade that, thank you very much, we paid you to learn to keep crooked politicians out of jail. That's just part of that Chicago thing I was talking about, Miles. Um, but anyway, uh, in one of the uh, the revelations in the document they re released were some uh, hideous anti-Semitic comments that Ed Burke made, opining, <laughs> opining about Jewish businessmen. Uh, and uh, sounds like something out of... Uh, Merchant of Venice, condemning Shylock or something. Uh, that's that's heck of a job, city of Chicago. That's your old. I I I believe there is something in the city of Chicago, the mentality of Chicago. Miles, I'm going to try this out on you. I believe that Chicagoans have this sense that the world is deprived, that the world is corrupt, that the world is crooked, and so that what you need is a an alliance with a crook in order to prosper. And that's why people like Ed Burke prosper in the city of Chicago. That's why mayors like Daly, Richard M., and uh, Rahm Emanuel didn't dare to challenge him because they buy into it too. There is a cynical as the next You think of Barack Obama, Mr. Clean coming out of Chicago. He never said boo about Ed Burke the whole time he was in the city of Chicago, man. So that's my theory. What's your response to my theory? Well, it's how the game is played. I think there's, I mean, until you, you know, you start a new game or you change the rules, people are going to just keep, you know, going with what has, you know, been the status quo. And in Chicago, we might not have ward bosses in the same way. We might not have, you know, the same level of political uh, patronage networks that existed, you know, a few decades ago. But the fact is that those power brokers still broker power in this city. And they, you know, whether it's kissing the ring or giving out contracts or giving out campaign funds, there are certain people who, of course, have, you know, involvement in shady uh, business practices or sh shady, you know, government deals that are the ones that also hold the most power and that the, that, that you often have to go through. I would offer though that there's that's machine style politics right in, in in its purest form and that has been part of the culture of this city's politics for um for, for many many decades but that's not you know an encapsulation of the entire city i mean just look at this new uh, breed of progressive city council members that we that, that we have that have broken off from that that are building their own networks that are not patronage networks necessarily but they're um, you know, community organizing efforts, essentially, that have that have built huge uh, networks of support and fundraising. So if you look at people like, you know, guests of your show, Rosana Rodriguez in the 33rd Ward, she's got, you know, massive community support. She's not looking, she's not getting money from Ed Burke or, you know, any support from them. In fact, she's challenging that whole style of politics. And there's a whole, you know, whether it's Mike Rodriguez, Matt Martin, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, Daniel Espada, Byron Cicho Lopez, there's all these aldermen that are 
breaking from that and, you know, trying to build their own alternative to that. So um, I do think that hopefully uh, the game is starting to change a little bit and it's being done through um, grassroots efforts on the ground. I, 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 sadly, though, the, the the old school guys are still around and, you know, and they still hold a lot of power in this town. So um, so it's it's not a new game yet, but I think it is starting to change. Well, I hope you're right. And uh, I'm going to try to be uh, optimistic the way you are. Uh, and yes, uh, many of the people that you mentioned are regular guests on my show. Where else would they go? To Lefty Land. <laughs> and by the way, most, just so you know, listeners out there from outside of Chicago, uh, Miles ran through a, uh, a list of some, the leading, I don't even call them progressives anymore. I'm through with that word. The leading lefties in the city of Chicago, all good people, honorable people in Chicago. They're viewed as impractical. See, that's part of that Chicago mentality. You take someone like Rosanna Rodriguez, who is just sterling, in my humble opinion, and she just sticks to her guns, uh, and she's got a ton of integrity. And what's Chicago's reaction to her? Oh, well, she's impractical, Ben. Come on, you got to be a little corrupt. Anyway, don't get me started on Chicago. Let's move away from Chicago and talk about uh, national labor news. Uh, I've been following in these times... Uh, the publication uh, that Miles writes and uh, edits uh, for um, has had some good articles uh, as of late in the, in the aftermath of the unsuccessful attempt by uh, unions to organize warehouse workers in Bessemer, Alabama at the Amazon facility. I was very disappointed uh, by uh, the vote there, uh, Miles. Um, uh, we had Keith Kelleher on from SEIU. Who, uh, he analyzed, we broke it down, we took the deep dive. Uh, on it, but what's your takeaway about uh, if there's any good news from the uh, defeat uh, in uh, Alabama, and where uh, does the union go? The union movement go from there. So go ahead, Miles. I think it's uh, incredible that there was a effort at a warehouse in Alabama, in a deep red state, in a right to work state, um, where workers took on one of the most powerful corporations uh, in the world and who took on a modern day robber baron in Jeff Bezos, the richest person in the world. These are um, warehouse, you know, low wage warehouse workers who said we want to organize. Uh, now, there was all kinds of and I'm sure you went into this in the deep dive. There's all kinds of uh, forces working against them. Uh, but the main one is that. Amazon got the bargaining unit massively expanded through appealing to the NLRB, which changed the uh, metrics for the union in terms of how many workers they had to win over in a very short period of time in the midst of a global pandemic, which, you know, kept them from being able to do the type of union organizing that is, um, you know, normally taken up in, in these types of efforts. Uh, in addition to that, there's just the fact that the United States has a labor law regime that is fundamentally uh, anti-worker. And what I mean by that is that boss, bosses and corporations, they have the ability to require their workers to sit through uh, these intimidation campaigns that just say, look, if you vote for the union, you're going against you know, what our company values. And we're going to remember that. Uh, it's supposed to be a secret union drive, but what we saw in Bessemer is that the Amazon set up this um, uh, mailbox basically outside of the 
uh, facility where then they said, okay, well, you know, it's anonymous, but we're going to watch and make sure you go vote. And if you're a worker there, aren't you going to think that's good, that they're watching and seeing who's voting which way and that they will retaliate? I mean, they basically said that. So, you know, the the law is stacked against workers right now. And that creates an environment where it's very difficult to uh, do what these workers did, which is take it, take efforts into their own hands. And many unions don't want to touch that because they know it's going to be most likely a losing campaign. That said, it's very rare for uh, at a company as powerful as this for Union Drive to be successful on its first try. And I do think that the workers there have built uh, some structures that they'll be able to build on in Bessemer in the future. But we also saw there's over a thousand requests to the RWDSU, the, the union uh, that took on the, the Bessemer campaign, uh, to organize in other facilities across the country. So workers were inspired by this action. Even if the workers were not uh, at that facility weren't successful, um, the impact of it is going to be uh, massive. And, you know, just look at the uh, the coverage. I work at a labor publication. We're usually the only place that's writing about this kind of stuff. Now, you, when it came to Amazon, you're reading about it in the New York Times, you're reading about it even in the Jeff Bezos own Washington Post. Um, and they're talking about worker struggle. They're talking about, you know, the fight for power in the workplace. That's something that is just unseen largely in American journalism um, and just the, the media broadly. So I think I don't want to, you know, claim easy victories or put, you know, totally bright shading on what was a defeat. But I think we have to look at this holistically and as, you know, what is the state of affairs facing American workers. And in the face of that, I think it's pretty incredible that these um, workers did what they did, even if they ended up losing this initial campaign. And I think ultimately it just shows the need to reform these labor laws. And luckily right now there's a big nationwide push uh, to do just that. And, and unions are leading it as our workers' rights organizations and uh, many progressive Democrats. And so there's the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, the PRO Act that, uh, as you mentioned, is uh, in Congress, making its way through Congress right now. And that would fundamentally change uh, many of the aspects of this anti-worker regime that I talked about earlier. All right, talk about some of the provisions in that act and why they're so important. Sure. So the main thing that the PRO Act would do is that it would end that type of employer interference and influence in union elections. So those captive audience meetings I mentioned also, I mean, there, there was all kinds of shady activity going on. Um, when it came to the uh, the Amazon campaign, there was, you know, text messages, there was postings in the workplace, um, everything possible, basically, to uh, push workers to uh, go against the union. So the PRO Act would make that illegal, basically, and, and stop that type of employer intimidation, which is massive in a campaign like Amazon and would almost assuredly have uh, switched some of the, uh, the the votes. The other thing it would do it was it would override local right to work laws. Now, right to work laws basically allow for free ridership, essentially, um, which means you don't have to pay due. You can still get all the protections of a union without paying dues to the union. Um, that 
understandably, you know, disempowers the union because they no longer have the resources to do the type of organizing um, or even political campaigning that is normally done. So uh, this, uh, the PRO Act would allow unions to, to override those right-to-work laws. Um, it would also penalize companies for violating workers' rights. So they would actually have to pay up, you know, if they're doing things like um, uh, not living up to uh, basic labor standards and, you know, engaging in OSHA violations or wage theft or all of the things that uh, bosses regularly do. It would provide mediation for unions on, on their first contracts. So many unions get organized and then they just never get a first contract because the employer refuses to negotiate essentially. So this would, uh, that was, this would change that. It would make it illegal to fire striking workers, which would be huge and, you know, build up the type of labor militancy that we saw in previous decades, like the 1930s, where workers were able to successfully strike and win uh, concessions from their employers. And very importantly, I think it would, um, stop the misclassification of workers as independent contractors. And that's a tactic we've seen companies um, do uh, increasingly over the uh, recent years. So they just say, look, these aren't actually employees. They're just contractors. So we don't need to um, abide by labor law when it comes to them because they're just you know, signing on board. And companies like McDonald's use this to say, People that work at the cash registers, they're just independent contractors of their individual franchisees. So we don't need to, you know, provide them any type of um, support or protections or what have you. So this would end that type of misclassification and force these companies to actually provide their workers not just rights on the job, but also the ability to organize. So it would be, you know, the most dramatic labor law reform in, um, in at least 40 years. And, uh, and it's got a chance. All right. Now your reading of things, uh, will it pass with any Republican votes or will this be another situation where every single Democrat uh, will be called on every single one because not there, there is no Republican support for this. What's your reading? Well, politically, I mean, this is, it flies in the face of everything that the Republican party stands for. Um, so I no, of course, I don't think any Republicans would support this um, in in any form, which means that its uh, legislative future rests on a couple different things. Either um, what President Biden has said is that he's going to include it in part as part of his infrastructure bill, this American Jobs Plan, the $2.2 trillion bill, that uh, while I think it falls short in terms of the scale, um, does with you know, be a massive expansion of, uh, you know, workers' rights in general, not just even outside of the PRO Act because of how much it would put into uh, building up industries and giving workers more rights and doing it through federal funding. So not just privatizing, which has been how the U.S. has usually done this type of infrastructure investment in the recent past. Um, and so if he get, he does put the PRO Act in there, then it could potentially pass because they plan to do that most likely through reconciliation, uh, which is a simple majority vote. Um, the problem is we saw what happened with the $15 minimum wage in the last reconciliation bill. The parliamentarian said, nope, can't do it. And so they just got rid of it. And I think it's quite likely that a similar thing would take place with the, the PRO Act. So even if they got it through there, the parliamentarian, this unelected bureaucrat would be able to essentially excise it from the 
um, the package. In that case, it's got they got to get rid of the filibuster. So, and I mean, so many uh, potential laws rest on the Democrats doing that because there's no chance of Republicans supporting any of this stuff. You know, the democracy reform or the People Act. Um, D.C. statehood, which just passed the House that would actually give residents of D.C. representation in uh, Congress. You know, the whole it's supposed to be a Republican uh, rallying cry. No taxation without representation. Well, <laughs> people in D.C., they're not represented. So, you know, for, for that, for example, but no Republicans are going to support it. So all of these types of things, including the PRO Act, are going to require um, the Democrats uh, changing the filibuster rules to to get that through. But that's, I mean, if they want to actually enact their agenda, that's what they got to do. All right, we'll get into some more of the filibuster things. And I was going to ask about D.C. statehood. Uh, we had uh, uh, Senator Paul Strauss, who's the uh, shadow senator for the uh, District of Columbia, on the show the other day. And again, a shadow senator means that he gets to go to to the Senate building and walk around. I think he has an office there, but he doesn't get to vote on anything because D.C. is not a state. Yes, no taxation without representation. Uh, but we'll get into that. That may require the ending of the filibuster rule. Uh, I'm more interested in something that you said to me yesterday uh, when we were chatting on the phone. And it gets back to um, the Democratic attitude toward unions and the Republicans' attitude toward unions as each party particularly the Republicans, are trying to establish them, their credentials as the party of the working class. You were the one who brought this up to me yesterday, and when you did, I was like, oh, my God, yeah, I remember Marco Rubio, the senator of Florida. Goes, we are now the party of the working class. I mean, you guys haven't – you're against a minimum wage at $15 an hour. You want some chintzy minimum wage, and you're never anywhere to be found in a fight for union rights. How the heck can you say you're the party of the working class in my book, that just means you're the party as for the white grievance, and you somehow or other have tied that to the working class. Let's before we get to the the deep dive on the Republicans, though, let's just take a moment to reflect on the difference. I'm not saying Joe Biden is Eugene Debs, but he's shown more support than Barack Obama for union rights. And I, again, I keep bringing this up. The downfall of the Democratic Party in the teens, Miles, was when Barack Obama looked the other way while Scott Walker was assailing unions in Wisconsin, which led, of course, to the Republican takeover of the staters, helped them fortify that takeover, led to Trump winning Wisconsin. So Democrats are, were slow to wake up to the fact that strong unions are helpful to them in holding on to power. Do you think there's been a change with the Democratic Party, with the leadership of the Democratic Party, even the more moderate ones, that they're now more, they're more closer to where you and in these times uh, and uh, is have been for years on labor rights? Well, I do. I think there's, you know, it's become a truism in Democratic Party politics to say whatever Joe Biden believes just becomes the center of, you know, Democratic politics now because of where, what, how he's able to occupy these seemingly moderate uh, positions, even when they're they happen to be left wing in uh, in effect, you know, and how they would impact policy. And so, when he puts out a video that says, "I support you know workers having the right to organize ahead of the Bessemer uh, election," that sends a message, and it says, "Look, th- he's not playing around." And look, I don't I don't think he's Eugene Debs either. But back in two thousand ten. 
uh, you know, I've been very critical of, uh, of Joe Biden, but back in 2010, during that occupation of the state house in Wisconsin, he wanted to go to uh, uh, the Capitol because they requested him. And Obama said no. Obama's team wouldn't let Joe Biden, you know, fly to Wisconsin to show support. So th- there is a change in terms of these different administrations and how they're approaching the question of union rights on, you know, and in terms of the, you know, where the Democratic Party is, I think it just reflects um, the conditions on the ground, you know, what I would call just the social factors at play, which is that there is now a uh, actually revitalized progressive movement in America that is making demands that didn't exist uh, a decade ago, and or at least not in its same form. And that the people in office now actually feel some pressure because of successful primary campaigns. So Chuck Schumer, the head of the, you know, the Senate majority leader, he doesn't want to be primaried by AOC or or, or another lefty. And so he's now uh, speaking out for unions like crazy. He might have said he was pro-union 10 years ago, but he wasn't doing the type of political work necessary to move this type of legislation forward or feel pressure to do so that he's doing now. And last thing I'll say on on that is uh, that there's still three holdouts right now um, for uh, of Democrats to support the PRO Act. It's Mark Kelly, uh, Kristen Sinema, uh, both of them are the Arizona senators, and Mark Warner, who's a senator from Virginia. Uh, they have not gotten on board um, with the PRO Act yet, and but they're facing pressure. There's groups uh, that have been leading a campaign, mainly union leaders, but also groups like the Democratic Socialists of America, that have been flooding the offices of these holdouts with calls. They've made over, I think, 600,000 Um, calls now to these uh, senators in the states. And just in the past couple weeks, we saw both Joe Manchin from West Virginia, probably the most right-wing Democrat in uh, in the Senate, and Angus King, who's actually just an independent who caucuses with the Democrats, uh, get on board. They both signed on as co-sponsors of the PRO Act within the past couple weeks after they faced this massive pressure of people calling and flooding their offices with demands that they, you know, back up their words that when they say that they're for the working class, they're going to support a bill that would dramatically expand union rights. So I think a lot has changed in terms of uh, how the Democratic Party operates, not just who's in charge. Um, and that has made all the difference. All right, let's go back. Now let's go to the Republicans. Uh, the reason that Kelly, uh, Cinema, and Mark Warner are so crucial to passing uh, the PRO Act bill is because there are no Republicans that I know of at the moment uh, who are supporting it. And yet, as I said, Marco Rubio says, we, the Republicans, will be the party of the working class. What do you make of the Republicans trying to claim the title as the party of the working class? Well, it's BS. I mean, there's no doubt that that's um, just posturing and uh, it's a clown show. I mean, they're, they're, these people are the enemies of the working class. They're, they represent the interests of capital which is at, you know, it's a class war and they're on the wrong side of it. Jim Banks, who's this uh, Republican representative from Indiana, he recently wrote um, this memo called Cementing the GOP as the Working Class Party. And he said it uh, requires, quote, enthusiastically rebranding and reorienting as the party of the working class. So this is their stated objective. 
The problem is, and you remember, I mean, people used to, were call, they were calling Trump the blue collar billionaire, right? Because they would say that he, you know, would hang out, would, he spent his life around builders and working people, avoiding the fact that he was their boss, you know, and he was the one that was making them work for these low wages, firing them. Like he might've been around them, but not of them. Uh, but it was, so they're, you know, what they, what they're putting forward is um, a hodgepodge of the same type of Republican proposals that they always put forward. Of course, they're not backing union rights. Of course, they're not backing a $15 minimum wage or any of the type of policies that would um, actually help working people. What they're offering is it's about it, it, it adds up to about three things. It's various uh, proposals for tax credits um, that, you know, a conservative think tank advocated and Marco Rubio and Mitt Romney are behind. Um, Josh Hawley authored this proposal for a tax credit tied to hours worked. So you get a little tax credit at the end of the year for, you know, some of your hours worked. And then Romney and Tom Cotton uh, want to raise the minimum wage to a, a whole $10 an hour. Can you imagine that? Um, but of course, that is also tied to uh, assurances that no uh, immigrants, undocumented immigrants would get it. So it's basically just harsh, you know, immigration policies, protectionism on trade, um, and then uh, supposed going after big business. But what they mean by that is tech companies, they don't want to actually do antitrust. They just want to, you know, punish technology companies that supposedly censor uh, conservatives and uh, they want to go up against this idea of wokeness and cancel culture uh, by complaining and complaining about COVID lockdowns and stuff that hurts small business. So none of it is pro-working class. It's the same type of white grievance politics that you brought up earlier, but it's try they're just trying to repackage it. And, uh, and it's a joke. I think that voters are clearly going to uh, see through it, but that's what, that's what they have now. That's what Trumpism has left. The Republican party don't have, they don't have like a unifying axiom that is bringing together what they're trying to do. It's clearly not about budgets or, you know, uh, business interests or, you know, classical conservatism because Trump was not about any of that. So they got to figure out what, what, what the hell they're going to do. And so this is where they're, 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 they're landing. Um, and the only way that that's, I mean, I think Democrats have to call that out as, um, you know, BS, as I said, but also they need to actually do the things. They need to be that party of the working class if they want to make sure that the Republicans fail at trying to claim that mantle. And doing that requires doing stuff like, you know, uh, getting rid of the filibuster and passing a $15 minimum wage and passing the PRO Act, you know, that would be some proof in the pudding. So, yeah. Um, that it's a, it's a good opportunity for the Democrats to show this for the joke that it really is. Well, I'll tell you what, this has been on my mind uh, for a while. I've been thinking about this uh, even before our conversation yesterday. And I hear you. I was listening very carefully to what you said. Uh, Democrats have to stick to their guns on these issues that benefit uh, uh, working class people, union people, the labor movement, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, the problem is the one I'm, I, <laughs> I was thinking about this. Like the one movement that Barack Obama made when he first got in uh, to office, when he um, uh, uh, led the uh, the bailout of the auto industry to really help Michigan, the state of Michigan. And then six years later, I'm watching all these auto workers voting for Donald Trump and bragging about it. I'm like, wait, wait a minute. 
traditionally, if if a party or a politician literally help, this goes back to Chicago. If like, if you literally help a constituent in Chicago, at the bar is law. You just get them a garbage can. They probably vote for you for life. Somehow or other, the Republicans and I, you know, this is like Rush Limbaugh's contribution, made white grievance the number one item on the agenda. All they had to do was check off that item. The Democrats did all the heavy lifting to help some auto worker in Michigan. And then the auto worker turns around and votes for Donald Trump. Now, I know I'm coming dangerously close. I could see it in your face, Miles, to voter shaming. And you're always chiding me not to voter shame. But this is a problem, a challenge for the Democratic Party, I believe. Like, get your reaction to this, to sort of like hold, have voters hold Republicans accountable for their anti-labor positions. Your thoughts on all this? What Republicans like to rail against is elites. But what they mean by that is cultural elites. They don't mean economic elites. They don't mean the people that actually hold uh, power uh, in in our country, the people that are, you know, pulling the strings of our political system through their, you know, contributions and think tanks and what have you. They just mean, you know, the culture broadly that they think wrongly uh, treats them. And that does mainly mean, you know, they're right to some extent in that there's, you know, there is a liberal current in American society. But there is nothing about that that is fundamentally against working people's interests. What working people want and deserve is the right to, you know, economic rights, the ability to build, have a decent standard of living and uh, build a life for themselves. And Republicans aren't offering that. They're offering coddling of the economic elites and trying to shelter them from any, you know, uproar from uh, from, from from poor and working people, and instead just get what what they're willing to give is you know uh, xenophobia and demagoguery, and saying you know the, the these wrong people are the ones to blame for uh, all your woes in life, and that only can last for so long. I mean, I do think there's a long strain of that being effective in U.S. politics as a as a strategy. But it has to be tied to some actual progressive, economically populist uh, policy. Otherwise, it's just straight up rhetoric, you know. And that, that we could go into, you know, questions of racial politics and the wages of whiteness and everything, and what people are are benefiting from. But fundamentally, if people don't see their paychecks increase, if they don't, if they're, if you know, people don't want to be canceled because they don't want to be like evicted from their apartment, right? Like they're not worried about this like broad thing that you hear on Fox news all the time about cancel culture. I think some of that might lead, lead through, but look at the tea party. The tea party was at least, I think it was, you know, misguided in a lot of ways, but it was about people feeling economic anxiety and responding. And what it was, I think to get back to your question, Ben is like, how do Democrats take credit for the good things they do? Obama failed spectacularly at that. And not just him. I mean, the whole administration, all the people working for him, they passed the uh, stimulus plan. And in the public's imagination, that was just tied to the bank bailout, uh, to TARP. They thought it was all the same thing. They thought, look, these people in government are are just bailing out the corporations. And we don't want that. 
So, you know, we need to end, you know, they talked about getting the budget under control and everything. But that was the animus. That was like the guiding political thought behind the Tea Party movement that made it successful. There's none of that now because I do think that the Democrats have gotten much better and certainly Biden's team is much better at actually claiming mm-hmm. and framing the, uh, the policies that he's passing as pro worker and, you know, and helping most Americans. It also helps that they're getting, you know, just checks into their bank account. Um, so I think the Democrats have a massive problem in terms of taking credit for stuff and, and, and framing things. Um, and they're still not great at it. But um, I think that that's the type of political work that needs to be done if they're going to be able to retain um, voters. And the last thing I'd say is, you know, Biden won Michigan. And I think part of the reason he did is because of he was so involved in that auto bailout and had that, you know, history in Michigan. Um, and Obama won Michigan in 2012 as well. You know, uh, the, the person who didn't was Hillary Clinton. And she didn't, I think, do a very effective job of reaching out to voters uh, in that state. So, yeah. All right. Fair enough. We're going to close by merging uh, your worlds that you love. People don't realize this about Miles. Uh, they think of him as a, uh, a political writer, political editor, a lefty, Bernie Sanders supporter. But they don't realize he's a big basketball fan. And uh, I only know that because he comes on the show all the time. We talk basketball from time to time. But the, the worlds are coming together. And I've been following this obsessively for the last 24 hours. Miles, I don't, I, this is a curveball to you. I, haven't, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you about this. All right, so follow me on this. If you haven't been following it, folks, I'll just uh, explain it. LeBron James, and you know some of my listeners are not really familiar with basketball, Miles, so I'll just explain, is perhaps the greatest basketball player currently playing. He's uh, a, a superstar in basketball, okay? You political junkies who don't follow sports. So LeBron James uh, is also outspoken, in my humble opinion, uh, he, he deserves credit, uh, against police violence against black people. And uh, so he has become a favorite target of Trump and MAGA uh, for his outspokenness. Uh, and uh, in the last 24 hours, the Republicans have been pounding away uh, on LeBron James in a concerted effort. Fox and Ben Shapiro and uh, just uh, the New York Post hammering away at LeBron James because he, he shot out a text uh, regarding the shooting of a teenage black girl in Columbus, Ohio. He took the text down. Uh, he said, you know, I should have waited a little while longer to see all the facts come out. I don't believe he said, I'm sorry for having done this, but he clearly, he took the text down. He distanced himself. The Republicans have been hammering at him and saying he's a hypocrite. Follow me in this one, Miles. This is how the Republican mindset works because he's not willing to criticize China. And uh, this is their favorite tactic for dealing with any player in the NBA who dares to criticize police violence in this country they're hypocrites because they won't criticize China and they won't criticize China because China is a key trading partner, if you will, with the NBA. And the games are shown in China. There's a, a burgeoning audience for basketball in China and some of the players endorse shoes manufactured in China. And so as a result, they're getting paid from China. I'm like, wow, what a brilliant move of political jujitsu. Totally hypocritical, of course, but... Uh, just to avoid the discussion of police brutality in black communities in our country by just talking about China. 
And what's your reaction? Do you, how how effective do you think this is? Um, when do when people th- counter at you uh, with the come back at you and say, "What about LeBron? how come LeBron James won't speak out with China?" How do you respond? Uh, so take it away, Miles. Well, it's a uh, it's a complicated scenario. I would just I would just offer that I don't think many of these Fox News heads are you know fighting for you know liberty for Hong Kong, right? They're not they're they're not the ones that are actually you know concerned with the uh, type of political conflict that is going on uh, within China. Uh, they're they're just trying to do some boogeyman stuff and. Uh, you're right. I mean, it's 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 just not actually dealing with the issue at hand and trying to sidestep it to make it about uh, something else. I mean, as if LeBron James needs to be, you know, a full a, a political actor on every level of like the international stage in order to have a valid opinion about a police shooting of a 16 year old in his home state of Ohio. I think that's completely absurd. And, you know, it just goes back to that. They say, you know, shut up and dribble all the time. That is their approach. It's been fascinating to me watching the Republican Party become just the anti-professional sports party, you know, when it's like, this is even the American pastime of, of baseball they're against now because the MLB moved the all-star game out of, uh, of Georgia. It's absurd. It's like as if there is somehow going to be, uh, you know, they're going to pivot to being like the anti-sports party now. Um, after they've spent so many years kind of like building up their reputation as being, um, you know, aligned with it. And look, the NBA players being more outspoken, they're realizing they have some more uh, negotiating power as it pertains to this stuff. Um, And it's becoming a little bit less toxic to become uh, a a political uh, spokesperson. Uh, within the, within the world of sports, so you know, I uh, am as you mentioned a Bulls fan. I remember the feud with Joakim Noah, even Nazi Muhammad pushing LeBron James down on the floor of the uh, United Center. So I, you know, I've not been a huge LeBron fan throughout my life because of that. But on this issue, I've got to say, you know, LeBron is. Uh, provided some real leadership within the the NBA, and I help, I think helped to like forge a path for other players to be more outspoken about this. One other thing I want to say is that what, sadly, you know, Ben, our beloved uh, team, the, the Chicago Bulls, are not uh, really up to snuff this this season, uh, which is too bad. Uh, not really pulling their their weight, whether it's you know the. I don't know. It's they, they made a trade for Vucevic, an all-star, and yet here we are with 12th place, I think. That said, I was lucky enough to go to the United Center and uh, get a vaccine, uh, COVID vaccine shot. And that was, you know, even if we can't have exciting basketball experiences at the United Center, the fact I got to go out there and uh, get shot to get protected against this virus shows that there is there is hope. There is still a, a place <laughs> of activity in the in the beautiful city of Chicago. Um, so I got to you know give shout out to everybody working at the United Center to uh, make sure everybody gets vaccinated and can get back to normal life. That is a brilliant pivot. I got to give you credit for that. That was really well done. And uh, let me just add to that before uh, we head out the door. I am a hundred percent 
behind LeBron James using his platform to draw attention uh, to issues of police brutality in the United States. And also, uh, during the campaign, the importance of uh, being able to vote, going out and registering, going out and vote. So I'm with you 100%, LeBron. But I'm just telling you, LeBron, I know you're a huge fan of the show. You're listening right now. Um, you know, you were a Cavalier. I'm a Bulls fan, as is Miles. So I love you off the court, not a love on the court. Okay, just saying, LeBron. Don't hold it against me, but I'm a Bulls fan. And you know what? I would have been rooting for you in, in 2010. Had you come to Chicago, like I was begging you to, but no, you decided to go to take your, what did he say? I'm going to take my game to South Beach. Uh, so I, you know what? It's 11 years. Alan. I still haven't gotten over that, Miles. He put that move on us, he and D. Wade. Like they were, I remember the day as well. Oh, my goodness. It looked like they were going to come to Chicago. They had breaking news in all the sports shows. Breaking news. LeBron James and D. Wade may be coming to Chicago. We're going to go to Billy Bob at the United Center. You know what I mean? <laughs> he just, man, LeBron, you played us. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, he just played us a little bit, doesn't he? Anyway, Miles, before I let you go, uh, anything you want folks to know about, any articles, uh, investigations, whatever, uh, take the opportunity yeah. uh, to talk about it. Yeah. Well, please, uh, you know, you can follow me on uh, Twitter at, at Miles K. Lassen. It's uh, at M-I-L-E-S-K-L-A-S-S-I-N. You can find my uh, news and views on all things politics and, you know, music, pop culture, whatever. Um, I, please check out InTheseTimes.com. We've got some great stories up right now. Our, actually, our, our most recent cover story um, is on the global fight against Amazon and all these workers in countries across the world that have been uh, agitated and inspired by the efforts in Bessemer to um, take matters in their own hands and take collective action uh, against Amazon in their countries. Um, and we've got a lot of great stuff up right now. We've got an interview with an organizer in Minneapolis about the Derek Chauvin verdict. Um, it's really good. I encourage people to read that. I've got a piece up right now um, by Jeff Shirky, who's a local Chicago labor writer about um, those three Democratic holdouts on the PRO Act. So read that. And uh, yeah, uh, keep following and hopefully I'll be uh, back soon. All right. Very good. Thank you very much. It's Miles Comps Lassen uh, from In These Times. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. numbers but you already knew that if you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car use kelly blue book my wallet on auto trader they're really good at numbers auto trader